In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed those people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it is wonderful to be with you. And uh, Pastor, thank you so much for the invitation to be here. And thanks for the opportunity to share God's word. I love this passage of uh, scripture, although... It is a, a little bit of a strange passage of Scripture um, because one more time in this passage, what you have is Jesus talking about food. Uh, Jesus did talk a lot about food, believe it or not. In fact, I was in a, a conference uh, when we lived in the UK. I was in this conference at, at a university, and uh, there was a group of New Testament uh, scholars from all over the world. And uh, one of the guys there, he now teaches at TCU, uh, and his name is David Musner, but he, he had this phrase, uh, Jesus ate and drank his way through the Gospels. And I like that. I think that's about right. And here in this passage, one more time, we have Jesus talking about food. In fact, it's a special meal, and it's very reminiscent of what we've already seen in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus, in the region of uh, the Jews, right, in the land of Israel, uh, in a, a group of Jews, Jesus fed the 5,000. Now he's outside the land of Israel. He's probably in uh, the region on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, what is modern-day Jordan, and he is feeding a group of non-Jewish people called, uh, oftentimes in your English translation, the Gentiles. That is, nations that are not Jewish. How many in here are folks who are not Jewish? There's a lot of us probably right? 
And uh, that's important. We'll get to that, why that's important in just a minute. But I love the fact that Jesus is once again having a meal with people. You know, meals are funny things. Meals are a great way to get to know people. Oftentimes, uh, you know, uh, meals are a place where it gets a little rowdy. If you go into uh, the calf at lunchtime at, at OBU, it's, it's noisy. And there's a lot of people. And it's fun and laughter. Why? Because meals are a way to get to know one another and celebrate life. And so it's no surprise Jesus ate and drank his way through the Gospels. But he talked a lot, especially in the Gospel of Mark, about things like bread. In this passage, you heard the word bread a lot. Why? Because bread's a central image that we find in this passage. Now, from this passage, really, I want to talk about the bread we need. Now, you might say, I'm hungry, be real quick with this message because I want some bread right now. Well, we'll get there, but uh, is really your hunger pangs alerting you to the bread that you actually need? Today, we're talking about the bread we need. And from this passage, I just want to give some reflections in the brief moments that we have, some reflections that will help us understand a little bit more the bread that we we need. So here's the first reflection. From this passage, you saw it, okay? Let me just reiterate. Here's the passage. Jesus is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in what is modern-day Jordan, amongst a mixed congregation, probably mostly Gentile, that is non-Jewish. That's significant. And he is, as we know in chapter 7, he's healing people. Before he was in this area of modern-day Jordan, we know he was in modern-day Lebanon because he healed a Syrophoenician woman. He was in the region of Phoenicia and Tyre and Sidon. And so Jesus is engaging people that are not Jewish and bringing salvation to them. And so this is the third instance where he heals the Syrophoenician woman and he goes about through the Decapolis, which is 10 cities uh, that that are not Jewish, and they're Greco-Roman cities, and he is doing uh, healings throughout the miracles throughout those regions. And now this is the third miracle that we see, and it's a miracle of multiplication. Now look at verse 2, if you have your Bible, look at verse 2 or your device, The text says that Jesus has compassion on them. Verse 2, I love it. In his own words, Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. Now, I don't want to bore you with all the the language stuff, but the, the original text is written in Greek, and this Greek word, splagnizomai, doesn't just mean like uh, in Southern culture when somebody says, oh, bless your heart, which means you poor pitiful thing, I feel sorry for you. That's not what Jesus is saying, I have compassion on them, I pity you. That's not what he's saying. This verb, this word actually means that Jesus has this kind of visceral experience that doesn't make him feel sorry for people, it makes them move to act. In other words, he sees a problem and he moves to act. And it's deep inside of his bones. 
Now, why do I want us to hear this? Well, what we need to understand is Jesus expresses compassion for everyone. Remember what I said that this is the second multiplication miracle? The first one we saw in the region of uh, Israel, and Jesus uh, fed the 5,000. This is Mark chapter 6. Now, in that passage, Jesus is feeding mostly Jewish folk. Now, this is important. When it comes to how Jesus expresses compassion, it's not just to his own people. And that means Jesus doesn't play favorites when it comes to who he loves. He doesn't just say, oh, I know, I will love white middle class America. That's who I'll love. He doesn't say, oh, I know who I'll love, the rich or the poor or men or women. He doesn't say, I know, I'll just play favorites with whom I have compassion, on whom I'll have compassion. I just, I'll play favorites. He doesn't do that. The fact that Jesus is teaching and performing miracles in the Decapolis and Syrophoenicia or whatever, it means that he's engaging people, his own people, Jews, often felt like were inferior to them. In fact... This Decapolis region, uh, the reason it's Decapolis is because it's under Greco-Roman authority and these are major Greco-Roman centers. In other words, what's going on here is you have the oppressors running the cities. And Jesus is going through these regions, engaging non-Jewish people, displaying his love and his compassion. This is powerful. Why? Because it reminds us that Jesus doesn't play favorites. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that Jesus has compassion on you? The answer is yes. Well, Heath, you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter. Jesus still has compassion on you. That means he loves you so much he feels it deep in his bones and he's moved to act. In this passage, splagnizomai, He's moved to feed them with physical food, but there's more to this physical food than, look, than, than, than meets the eye, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But Jesus com- expresses compassion for you. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter what you think you've done, how unworthy you might think that you are. Here's my good news for you, my friends. Jesus loves you. He loves you so much, as we'll see later on in chapter 8. He says this, the Son of Man has to go to the cross, has to suffer and die and rise again. Why? To express his love for you and for me. He has compassion on us. Now, if that's true of Jesus, let me ask you a question. Do you have that same compassion for the people around you? Do I? You say, well, I pity that person. Or I look at that person, I think, oh, they're pretty sad. See ya. No, do you have compassion, the heart of Christ? Especially if you're a follower of Jesus. Do you have that same heart that Jesus has? Do you see people in your community, your workplace, your school, your neighborhood, your apartment complex? Do you see people like Jesus sees people? Christ expresses compassion. He doesn't play favorites. Do you? 
Do I? Oh, if I'm honest, I would say that we play favorites. And what we need is the love of Christ to transform us. Jesus expresses compassion for everyone, and so must we. Second, reflection. I love this. We struggle with what brings satisfaction. It's like uh, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. We can't get no satisfaction. If you don't know who the Rolling Stones are, first of all, you need to repent. And uh, you need to come to Christ. Uh, No, but uh, I'm kidding. But uh, if you don't know that song, you should. I can't get no satisfaction. And this was... uh, this was a, I mean, it's just a phenomenal song. But isn't it true? We have a hard time with satisfaction, don't we? And it was true in our day, but my friends, it was true in their day as well. I like this. When you see Jesus and the disciples, you, you see this in verse 8, that Jesus sees their need, all these folks, and he feeds them, and they are satisfied. They're satisfied. Now, again, there's more to this meal than meets the eye. But for all of those non-Jewish folks who eat and are satisfied, guess what? There are some others that aren't satisfied at all. In fact, after this story, this miracle of multiplication amongst Gentiles, Jesus gets in the boat and then heads to uh, Dalmanutha, right? It's not 101 Dalmatians, right? It's Dalmanutha. What is that? Well, it's a region, again, back in Jewish region. And he has to get in the boat to get there. Now, why this is important is because when he gets to where he's going in the boat, guess what? He gets out of the boat and he's encountered by Pharisees. And what the Pharisees do, look at what the text says. The Pharisees, verse 11, came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, what's interesting is you and I as readers know more than the Pharisees do. It's nice to know uh, uh, more than somebody else sometimes. And as readers, we know more than the Pharisees. What do we know that the Pharisees don't know? Well, here's the basic thing. We know that Jesus has already performed signs. Think about it. In chapters 1 through 7, what has Jesus done? Well, he's healed a bunch of people. He's also already performed a miracle of multiplication. Jesus is more than, you know, David Blaine. He's not just a magician. He's doing miracles to show who he is. In fact, in this chapter, chapter 8, It's after all of this, after verses 1 through 21, that we get Peter's great confession that he is the Christ, the Messiah. So Jesus is the Messiah, the one that everybody was looking for, including the Pharisees. But they couldn't see who he was. Why? Because they had almost like blinders on their eyes. Look at what the text says. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Now, starting an argument, some of your versions might read they wanted to discuss some things with him. But actually, what we find here in this passage is they weren't open to debate. You know, a fair debate is a good thing. 
Hey, I, I want to hear your opinion on this. Okay, I'll give you my opinion on this. Okay, let's talk about our opinions and debate the facts of the case. And now we come to a new, fuller understanding. That's a good discussion. We don't all have to agree, but we've discussed something and came to a deeper understanding. That's a discussion. But that's not what the Pharisees are doing. It's not like an even-handed discussion. The, the language here is actually they want to argue to disprove him. In other words, they've already made up their mind about Jesus. Now, some of us in this room, we approach Jesus kind of like these Pharisees. We know about him. If you go through the Gospel of Mark, you'll find Pharisees uh, are usually disparaging Jesus. They're talking against Jesus. They're saying, why are you doing this healing on the Sabbath? Why are you uh, performing this miracle on the Sabbath? Why are you eating bread on the Sabbath? You can't do this. You can't pick grain in the fields on the Sabbath. That's like work. You can't do that. Why are they saying these things? I'll tell you why. Because their deep satisfaction and their priorities are found in something other than Jesus. What is it? Well, they have these traditions that are good. They're just not God. And these traditions have conditioned them not to see Jesus for who he is. In fact, as Jesus talks to these Pharisees, one of the things that he says is, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. you got to put new wine in new wineskins. If you put new wine in old wineskins, as the wine ferments, it bursts the old wineskin. Now, what Jesus was doing, he's the new wine, and it's like you can't put what he's doing in their old wineskin. It's like ripping and bursting all of their preconceived ideas about who the Messiah is, about who Jesus is, about what God wants, about what God desires. And it's blowing them up. And so their priorities, their perspective, what they think brings satisfaction prevents them from seeing who Jesus actually is. Now, the reality is, my friends, if we were honest, oftentimes that's exactly how we approach Christ. We're confronted with the reality that Jesus is the Lord. And instead of embracing that fact, what do we do? Yeah, I don't like that, so I'm out. Now, if you look in the Gospel of Mark, Mark is already declaring and revealing Jesus to be Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's miraculously born. He is calling the disciples. He goes through these miraculous tests. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. The Gospel of John says that he really is the agent through whom all of creation was made. And what that means is it's his world. We're just living in it. The Pharisees would not be able to see that. And my friends, oftentimes you and I aren't able to see it either. Why? Because our priorities prevent us from embracing Jesus. In other words, we're looking for satisfaction somewhere other than Jesus. Where might we look for satisfaction other than Jesus? 
I don't want to meddle too much or get in your chili too much, but might as well. I'm a guest speaker. You can kick me out. That's fine. If you and I are looking for satisfaction in another human being, we're looking for love and satisfaction in all the wrong places. If you and I are looking for satisfaction in life, from a profession, a job, reputation, what people think about me, how people think about me, my friends, we're not going to be satisfied. I don't want to meddle, but again, I don't care. So, if I were to pull up your device as you screen, uh, you scroll aimlessly on your screen at this picture and that picture and at this Instagram post and that Instagram post, at this TikTok video, at that TikTok video, at this Snapchat, at that Snapchat, and we look and we look and we scroll and we think, maybe, maybe, maybe this post will bring me happiness. Here's the reality. It's not. We're always going to be hungry and we'll never be satisfied. Why? Because there is only one food that satisfies. That satisfies. It's the bread that Christ provides. What we need to understand is these disciples didn't see it. The Pharisees didn't really see it. The Pharisees were trying to test Jesus' bona fides. Is he for real? Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In the Old Testament, testing to see if a prophet was true is good. Deuteronomy 13. Think about Moses in the book of Exodus. When, when Moses was saying, hey, let my people go, it was one of those things they wanted to test to see if Moses was for real. Throw down the rod. Okay, let's throw down the rod. And it becomes a snake. Now pick it up again. So testing to see if what is legit is legit is not a bad thing. And some of us are kind of testing and tasting to see if Jesus is who he says he is. That's not necessarily bad. But if your mind is already made up, guess what? You're not having a real conversation with Jesus. You're not really actually tasting to see if Jesus is king. No, no, no. You've got your mind already made up. Now, what about this uh, issue of satisfaction in the leaven? Remember what Jesus says here? He says this uh, in verse 15. He gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What is that? Talking about satisfaction and bread, might as well. Does anybody know what this is? Say it out loud if you know. Yes, it's okay. It's a safe place. You can talk out loud in church, right? Uh, this is yeast. And do you know what yeast is? It's a leavening agent. It makes bread rise, right? And a little bit goes a long way. And so, might as well stick with the theme of bread. When Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, he's talking about how leaven, just a little bit, as a change agent, begins to change the whole body of the dough. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying there is this kind of change agent. A little bit will impact your whole life. 
So the leaven, that change agent that's going to impact your life, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What is that? Well, this little bit for the Pharisees might have been something like tradition. Tradition. Satisfaction comes from tradition. My priorities at the expense of Christ's priorities. The tradition trumped the reality of Jesus. Now, I want us to think about our own hearts and lives. Does our tradition or maybe your priorities or your wants, your needs, your desires, which I like Eugene Peterson, he calls my wants, my needs, my desires as the unholy trinity. Do your wants, your needs, your desires actually trump satisfaction in Christ? This was the Pharisees. And a little bit of that leaven in your heart and in your life, Jesus was warning the disciples it carries over for us today. Guess what? A little bit of that leaven will ruin the whole batch. It impacts everything. And then he says the leaven of Herod. Now, if you look in the Gospel of Mark, Herod is quite an interesting figure. He's kind of sympathetic to John the Baptist early on. He's kind of sympathetic to Jesus. But pretty soon, preference and more specifically, politics gets in the way of seeing Jesus. Now, I don't want to meddle. But what Jesus is reminding is politics is a terrible substitute for satisfaction in Jesus. It doesn't matter if your icon is an elephant or a donkey. Herod found that satisfaction in politics is no satisfaction at all. And Jesus is reminding if we're trying to replace satisfaction in Christ with politics and political gain, listen, that's leaven that's going to ruin the whole batch. We've got to find a way, listen to this, to pledge allegiance to Jesus the King, whose power and authority transcends political power. If you've ever lived overseas, you begin to understand, you begin to understand this and see this a little bit more. Do you know what the Brits would say about uh, Jesus? He's bigger than twig, uh, uh, Whig or Tory politics. And I would go, eh? Because I didn't understand. But it's their version of saying the same things. Politics is a terrible substitute for pledging allegiance to Jesus the King. Now, we should thank God for government. We should thank God that we live in this nation. It's a great place to be. Trust me, it's a great place to be. Is it perfect? Lord, no. But is it good? Yes. But my friends, here's the reality. Pledging allegiance to Jesus the King is the only thing that will satisfy this, this, this fruit that we call politics is a great gift, but it's a terrible God. So let me ask you a question. What satisfies you? Do you find yourself getting all exercised about this issue or that issue? All worked up and angry, mad. Are you finding satisfaction in Jesus the King? 
Here's a couple of other things. When I reflect on this passage, I also see that even followers of Jesus struggle to see him. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's great. I love that. That's wonderful. You've tasted and seen that Jesus is good. However, do you know, so did his followers. And they had a hard time really even understanding who Jesus is. In fact, this passage is so interesting because it's the miracle of multiplication with bread and fishes. Round two. It's round two, and you would think the disciples would see and understand what's about to happen. Oh, oh, we're in a desolate place. Oh, all right, that sounds familiar. Oh, we don't have any food. That sounds familiar. All right, Jesus, we're waiting on you. You do your thing. But guess what? They don't do that. When you see the disciples' response to the situation, it's like they have amnesia. They look at what Jesus has done, and it's like, uh, oh, no, we're... We're, we're hungry again. We're going to die. What's going to happen? Uh, ah. And before you get too hard on these guys, have you ever done that? Here's Jesus' provision in your life. Miracle upon miracle. You wake up the next day, and it's like the day before didn't even happen. Jesus' provision didn't even happen. The miracle that he provided in your life wasn't even real. And you face each day like, oh, I don't know. That's the disciples. Why? Because, listen, even followers of Jesus struggle to see. In fact, he provides the miracle of multiplication in this passage. They get in a boat and go to the other side of the boat and look at this. Verse 14, he's already provided bread, miracle after miracle, seven baskets left over. Verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Now, that seems a strange little tidbit to include in this passage, but look at verse 16. They were discussing amongst themselves that they didn't have any bread. Bread's a major uh, feature in this passage. Sandwiched, yes, that was a pun, right? Sandwiched in between those two bread references is the meat. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And it's like they're looking and they're saying, uh, what? What? Jesus says, oh, guys, I know you've forgotten bread. You only got one loaf. But beware the leaven of Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they're like, yeah, hey, where's the bread? Do we have any bread? I don't know about bread. And Jesus gets so exasperated at them. Look at this. Verse 17, aware of this, he said to them, why are you talking about the fact you have no bread? Don't you understand? Do you have hardened hearts? And then he quotes the Old Testament. Talking about the people of Israel back in the Old Testament days. Do you have eyes and do not see? Do you have ears and not hear? Are you like them in the past that can't see what I'm up to? You're talking about bread. Why? Because the disciples are just like us. They have a really hard time seeing who Jesus was. This is like uh, we who are reading this passage are going, guys, come on, are you, do you not understand? Jesus took care of you in chapter 6. He took care of you here in chapter 8. The fact that you're missing a loaf of bread is not going to be a big, big deal for Jesus. But they're like us. 
They can't see. They forget. They have amnesia. Even followers of Jesus struggle to see who Jesus was. And this passage concludes in verse 21. Look at this. Don't you understand yet? I love that. Because it's almost like the text is opening our eyes to this question. Are you ready? Do we not understand who Jesus is? Do we not know that Jesus provides the satisfaction we are longing for? In fact, this is the last reflection. This text is trying to show us that Jesus is the bread we need. He is the bread we need. There is no other food that will satisfy. There is no other relationship that will satisfy. There is no other addiction that will slake our thirst. Jesus is the bread that we need. What's interesting is when he takes these uh, seven loaves, we can see this uh, there in verse 6. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks. Do you know what that word there is? It's the same word that we get the word Eucharist, giving thanks. Thanks for the bread of life, Jesus. He gave thanks and he broke it and he blessed it. This is the language of the Eucharist. Jesus is reminding, even in this passage, what he is going to do with his own body. It is going to be broken and blessed so that you and I might have life. Our satisfaction might be found in Christ. He is the bread we need. John chapter 6, the evangelist John describes it this way. When Jesus speaks, he discloses his identity. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the bread we need. There is nothing else in this life that will satisfy. Nothing. It's almost like we've got to get aligned in our life the right way. If we're looking for someone else to satisfy, or a job, or a position, or prestige, or reputation, guess what? We get out of alignment and we're headed the wrong direction. But when we set our focus and our devotion and pledge allegiance to Christ the King, everything else lines up the right way. He provides the satisfaction you and I need. Now, I, I, weird, I read weird books because I'm probably a weird person, right? But, uh, uh, and I'm an Old Testament professor, so I like to read a lot of strange things. But one of these books that I've, I've, uh, I was reading is a book on Ignatian spirituality, kind of interesting. But it's, I love the title. It's called Sleeping with the Bread. And the subtitle is Holding, uh, Holding What Gives You Life. Yeah, that's it. Now, it's not a children's book, right? But it has nice little illustrations. Now, where did this phrase, sleeping with the bread, come from? Well, during the bombing raids of World War II, thousands of children were orphaned and left to starve. The fortunate children were placed in refugee camps where they received food and good care. But many of these children could not sleep 
at night. I mean, if you could imagine, right? We, we've never been invaded. We don't know. But if, if you could just imagine these little children, orphaned, no family, a constant barrage of uh, German warplanes coming over, uh, it would be tough to sleep, wouldn't it? They were hungry. They were needy. They feared waking up once again homeless and hungry. Nothing helped them. No matter what the social workers tried, nothing helped them. They were always anxious, and they wouldn't sleep. Finally, someone hit on a, a bright idea. I know, and it's strange. He said, we'll give each of these children a piece of bread at night before they go to bed. And so as the children got ready for bed, they would apportion a piece of bread to the child, and the child would go to sleep. Now, what's fascinating about this is when they got the bread, they found peace and went fast asleep, slept through the night. It was almost as if when they were given the bread, they knew I had eaten today and I've got food for tomorrow. They found peace. Why do I tell you that story? Jesus is the bread we need. We will not find peace, satisfaction, or joy in any other source. My friends, what we need to do is like those little children, begin to find rest and peace with the bread of life. Do you know Christ? Do you embrace Christ? Are you finding satisfaction or at least attempting to somewhere else? Cast it aside. It will not satisfy. Only when we feast on Christ, which we're about to do, will we be satisfied. I'm going to ask you to stand and let me pray over.